Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome to another edition of On Mike with Jordan Rich. Conversation alive and well with creative people who have a lot to say and a lot to offer. Joining me today is a medical man, Dr. David Alfery. He was a cardiothoracic anesthesiologist in private practice in Nashville, Tennessee for 36 years. He's now chronicled his life in medicine in a transformational and beautifully written book called Saving Grace, what patients teach their doctors about life, death, and the balance in between. His story really led me to focus on those who take the Hippocratic Oath so many, like Dr. Alfrey, who feel for their patients, caring for them in life and mourning them in death. I believe it's one of the best memoirs ever written by a doctor. It's very worthy of conversation, so let's do just that and welcome Dr. David D. Alfrey to join us on Mike. Talk about a book that really moved me. As I was moving, uh, actually en route to New York via train, I was sitting in the quiet car reading Saving Grace, and I'm glad I was by myself. I'm glad I was able to take it all in and reflect and tear up a little bit. Uh, Dr. David Alfrey, thank you so much for joining me. It's a real honor and a pleasure, sir. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So many of us uh, in, during the pandemic particularly uh, said publicly, let's thank the medical community. Let's say thank you to the doctors, the nurses, the medical staff. I do that every day because I've had people in my life who have uh, have been there for me, and they are constantly on duty and constantly alert. And I know this book, as you told me in the uh, in the pre-interview, is not about you necessarily, and you're very humble. But uh, it really does point to those who go into medicine who really mean it and and have a mission. That comes through very clearly for me. Well, thank you. You know, for me, being in medicine was its own reward. There were days when I drove home from the hospital thinking, I can't believe I get paid to do this. Uh, it was just a, just such a privilege to take care of patients. Uh, I think we get a lot of praise for things that we do, like a mission work and that type of thing. But at the end of the day, the rewards are so enormous for us. Well, the subtitle is What Patients Teach Their Doctors About Life, Death, and the Balance in Between. And it's a connection that you um, sort of grew in, into as you became a medical person. And it really hit home with you, didn't it, this, this human connection that's so important in medicine? Yeah, I, you know, I think a lot of people, well, I think I was typical of many medical students. You go into medicine and you're pretty excited about it. You're, you're pretty puffed up about who you are and who you're going to be and um, you know, the, the fact that I'm going to be a doctor. Uh, and then you get into the nitty gritty of it. And it, it really slaps you across the face when you start. And uh, I, I developed a sort of callousness uh, through my training and my early years of practice. I think just because of all the carnage that you see in your practice. And I was in cardiac anesthesia, so there was a lot of carnage to see. But 
uh, over time, I think you soften, you mature, and you realize that, you know, this is just this enormous shared humanity that you're a part of. And going through life that way with this enormous armor on, it's just not very satisfying. And so over time, I think most physicians mature and they they become more sensitive, more aware of the the frailties of life and just get in tune with who they are and who their patients are. Some burn out. Some cannot handle and don't handle it. It's not a character flaw, in my opinion. It's just how we're built, I mean, to be able to understand and conceive of and, and accept what's going on in that hospital. Yeah, and, and, you know, burnout is actually much more common now than when I was in practice. And I, I said, I think that it was easier for me to work a 14-hour day than it is for many doctors to work an eight-hour day today. It's just, you know, with the corporatization of medicine and the and the the time pressures and the uh, the intrusive electronic record, I think it's just not mm. nearly as satisfying. We're talking with Dr. David Alfrey, MD. Before we get into the book and the title, which is very important because Grace is someone we need to recognize. Let's talk about how you evolved into the field you ended up in finally, because you didn't start out in that area. Yeah, you know, um, yeah, I had sort of a crazy path. <laughs> I went down to Tulane University as a pre-med student, and uh, halfway through my sophomore year, wandered down to Bourbon Street and was a bartender, was the youngest legal bartender on Bourbon Street, and found that was a lot more fun than going to school. So I almost flunked out, went back and took my pre-med courses after I graduated, uh, got into LSU Medical School, and then I was going to be a cardiac surgeon. And about two-thirds of the way through my surgery internship, I was just absolutely toast. We had, I'd had a, a a month of every other night call where when you were on call, you didn't go to bed. Mm. So it was just an absolutely brutal time. And I thought, you know, I, I'm just not sure I've done it. I, I want to do this and decided to go into emergency room medicine. And then the chief of anesthesia pulled me aside one day and said, David, I, I heard you're going to go into emergency room. And I said, well, I'm thinking about it. And he said, come see me. And so I did. And uh, I kind of confessed that even though I was working in the operating room all year, I, I kind of ignored the anesthesiologists. You know, they were they were sort of the lesser people. You know, I was one of the big surgeons. And uh, I, I said, I can't imagine a boring specialty like that. And he said, no, there's nothing boring about it. You're the ICU doctors of the operating room. And we talked for 20 or 30 minutes. He said, think about it. And I came back a half hour, I mean, a, a week later. And I said, Ballard, you know, I've, I have thought about it. I think I'll, I think I'll take a shot at that and do that. And he named the number of cities where he knew the chairman of anesthesia. And I asked him, well, how's San Diego? You know, I knew the weather was awfully nice out there. And he said, well, it's a top five program. They'll be filled, but, but I'll call. And later on that day, his uh, secretary called me and she said, you're going to San Diego. And so I made this two momentous decisions one, to go into anesthesia, and two, to do my training in San Diego based upon a 20 or 30 minute conversation and the fact that the weather in San Diego averages about 70 degrees. Uh, and it could not have been the better. I have never made better decisions in my entire life. 
I'm not sure what the lesson is there. Maybe don't, <laughs> don't overthink things too much. Let me let me go back to the previous uh, question that I sort of insinuated we'd get to, and that is the title, Saving Grace. The book opens with a case that really makes you stop and think and feel because it was one of your earliest cases involving grace. Yes, and um, I, I hope I keep my composure. You know, you, you have these experiences as a physician that are really powerful, and you uh, you put them into a little box, and you put them aside. But when you go back and open that box, mm. all, the, all the feelings come back. And uh, Grace was a, a patient that I met the second month of my internship, I was on a general surgery rotation. She was about 19 years old, had been terribly burned in a in an accident caused by a drunk driver. She'd been on the service about a week when I got there, and she had burns over most of her body, and the there was just only a minuscule chance of her living through this hospitalization. And if she did live through it, she was going to be just horribly disfigured with contractures and it was just absolutely a no-win situation whether she lived or died and we kept her alive for a couple of weeks and uh she passed at that time and hmm. i had not met the parents up until that time and my second year surgery resident brought the parents into a quiet room to talk to them and a quiet room, uh, quiet rooms are in every hospital. They're often at the end of a ward. They're always next to an ICU. And a quiet room is just what it sounds like. It's a mm -hmm. sort of soundproof, uh, close the door, and you're going to have the most difficult conversation a parent has ever had in that room. And uh, Rick, Dr. Carter brought the parents in. I was there. I'd never been there for a, a talk like this. And I thought, what? can you possibly tell a parent who's just watched their daughter struggle for three weeks in the ICU? How can you possibly give them any comfort? And he told them that Grace had passed, and I can't remember what else he said other than the last thing. And I remember this the way I remember where I was on 9-11. He said to them, I want you to know it was a privilege to take care of your daughter. And that was a gift that the parents could take after they buried Grace, but it was an enormous gift to me as well. Because from then on, I really realized that when I took care of a patient, I was privileged to do that. It was an honor to take care mm. of people. And I went through my entire practice life having that feeling and that knowledge. And I, I think I had a much richer career because of that. It's touching, it's sad, it's tragic, but it's also quite beautiful. And when I was reading it, I'll just share this with you and anybody else. When I was reading it, I was thinking of my first wife passed away now 10 years ago, a uh, long bout with cancer. And I remember thinking after it was over, she was finally at peace. I remember thinking being a caretaker felt like being medieval knight, protecting the damsel, yes. did as best I could. And that's all you can do is the best you can in certain circumstances. But it, it, instead of feeling guilty or ashamed, I felt proud of the opportunity to, to be there for her. And that's, I hear that and read that in your book on almost every chapter. It's really quite touching. So let's examine some of the chapter headings. I think that's a great way to look at it. The book is called Saving Grace. It, it should be a primer for anybody in medicine, but anybody 
<laughs> it, anybody, because we're all equal humans on the planet. First one, I think, is respect, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, sadly, this, this goes back to the immaturity that I had as a freshman medical student. Um, I make the point in the book that I, I flunked my first test in medical school, uh, and that was on respect. And that was the first day of class when mm. we had our first gross anatomy lab, and we gather around our, our uh, metal containers where our cadaver is, where we're going to be our dissecting. And the, the teachers had said, now, these people have donated their bodies to your education. You need to treat them with reverence, and you need to treat them with respect. And I hardly heard what he said. I was just excited to, to get in and see where the nerves went and see where the muscles went. And, um, you know, we, we were fairly callous about yeah. our cadavers. And it's not something I look back with uh, with any uh, with any pride. Yeah, it, it's a problem actually in medical school with students and their cadavers. And now a lot of medical schools, because of that, have introduced programs where there is a ceremony before you begin working on a cadaver, acknowledging what mm. a tremendous gift this. Uh, this person has given to the students. That is wonderful. That it, it's very touching and and moving. And uh, people don't think about these things, <laughs> we civilians, but it's very important. There's one point in the story of your uh, medical career in life where you talk about it happening to you or somebody in your family. I believe your daughter who was yes. in serious trouble. And for this moment, you were on the other side. You were the parent. You knew medically what was going on, perhaps, but you were in that powerless position. Talk a little bit about that. It's called Desperation, Chapter 12. Yeah, um, I, I had had a patient, well, if any anesthesiologist has treated a number of patients with something called DIC. That's disseminated intravascular coagulopathy. And I had had a particularly tough case with a, with a huge back and... Um, we had saved the patient, and about a week after that, the surgeon sent me a book, a little present. You, know, you never get a present from a surgeon. And I said, Frank, what's that all about? And he said, well, that's the third case I've had like that. The first two died. Two years after that, my daughter had the same operation at Vanderbilt, only it was bigger. And it was going to be a 10-hour operation, and... Um, we had gotten word about eight hours into it. it. It's all gone well. They're closing. And then about a half hour later, the nurse came out and said, uh, there, there's been some bleeding. Mm. Uh, we've called for the general surgeon. And uh, if it was just a, a minor bleed, it would have been uh, taken care of pretty quickly. But the nurse didn't come out a half hour or an hour or even an hour and a half later. And I knew that she was having a catastrophic bleed. And I pretty much knew she was having DIC. Mm. And as much as you think that you can put yourself in the place of a patient or a patient's family and truly understand what they're going through, I think it's one of those things in life that until you've experienced it, you don't know the depth of that helplessness that you feel. All of the, my medical training and all of the knowledge that I had meant absolutely nothing. Um, and as a matter of fact, I, I think it was, you know, it was worse in the sense in that 
I knew how bad it could be. And I knew how, right. in fact, she could bleed to death. Thankfully, she she got through it and, you know, great medical team. But uh, it was a horrible experience as a parent, but it helped me grow, I think, as a physician to see my patients with more empathy than I had even at that time. Yeah, you just mentioned the E word, empathy. And uh, in the past, I've talked with a wonderful woman from Mass General, Dr. Helen Reese, who's written extensively on the subject of empathy and empathy in medicine among professionals. And it is something that some people are naturally born with, gifted with. Others, it's uh, sometimes something that has to be taught. There are uh, stories in the book about some pretty slick surgeons, I mean, uh, top of their game, stymied when something doesn't go the way it's supposed to go. There's one chapter called Unfathomable, which really just makes you shudder because you see close up a real case as to, you know, what can happen. Uh, You want to share with us a little bit about the Unfathomable story? Yeah, um, gosh, you know, I I just got an email from, the surgeon, the general surgeon who tried to save that patient's life. And, uh, and he said, David, you know, you captured, you just so captured the terror and the, and the disappointment and the, the tragedy of our specialty, the, some of the things that happened. Um, there was a, a woman, a, a mother of two, she's probably in her forties, uh, had come in from, for liposuction, uh, on a Wednesday, I think. And, yeah, you know, it's a it's just such a routine procedure for a, a plastic surgeon. They can pretty much do it with their eyes closed. Um, but she had abdominal lipo uh, liposuction, and the trocar, which is the the firm metal instrument that they use to stroke in and out of the fat that sucks the fat out, had somehow pierced her abdomen mm. and had pierced her intestines. And she had gone home and over a couple of days had gotten sick and had been in the emergency room and they sent her home. And by the time she came in on a Saturday, she was just absolutely desperately ill. And one of my partners who was on call for general surgery asked me to give him a hand and I went over to the OR. And um, it's a you walk in the room and you immediately smell uh, the only way I can say it is you smell death. Mm. You smell something that is so foul because the intestines have spilled into the abdominal cavity and there's a lot of dead tissue. And uh, the surgeon, uh, actually his name is Bill Polk, was uh, trying to take out the dead tissue and this woman kept going into cardiac arrest because her potassium was going up so high and we couldn't keep it down. So we stopped the surgery short and said, look, let's just get her up to the ICU. All of our medical treatment for the potassium hasn't worked. Let's just put her on dialysis and see if that can somehow save her life. And so we stopped the surgery early, brought her upstairs, put her on dialysis. And Uh, A couple of hours later, I was up in the ICU putting a central line in a patient Mm. and uh, a nurse came running into that part of the ICU, just sobbing, Mm. yelling, it's over, it's over. And uh, Mm. the woman had perished and uh, it was just absolutely tragic. And the the nurse running into that ICU, I think, just demonstrated the the heart and soul that caregivers give into their patients, that um, we live and die for them. 
Indeed, uh, indeed. So eloquently, that's so that's eloquently spoken here, and so beautifully written in the book. You know, in restaurant world, they say you're not supposed to ever make a mistake. One mistake can cost you. But that's only a bad meal and maybe no tip. I mean, in in the world of medicine, every time out, you try to be perfect because that's the goal. It doesn't always work out that way. But there are some great victories. There were some exciting, dare I quote my age, medical center moments, Dr. Kildare moments, when things <laughs> things go right and you save somebody's life. That as well has to be a feeling of elation that none of us can even imagine. Yeah, it's uh, it's when a, when a patient absolutely defies the odds and there's it just seems like all of these dominoes have to fall just precisely for them to live through an episode and they do it's it's almost miraculous and i i i think i quote albert einstein in the book that albert einstein famously said there's two ways to look at life one is that there are no miracles uh-huh. The other way is that everything is a miracle. Love it. Love that quote. Thank you for sharing it with us on the podcast. Um, th- there's a moment or two when you're with someone and they express a very simple thank you to you, which means the world. Uh, there was one older gentleman I know, and uh, it, it works both ways, gratitude. I mean, you're happy and gracious that you're given this talent to do and help. But when you get that, it's... It's earth moving, isn't it, in some cases? Yeah. You know, I, I, I think physicians, you know, we get rewarded in so many ways. Um, we get well paid. Uh, we get the satisfaction of a, of a job well done on most occasions. There's a, a, some degree of societal prestige. Uh, patients are grateful for us. Um, the, the thing that really struck me, and I know this happened to me many times in my career was I would get called to the ICU to, to put a breathing tube into a patient. And usually it's a situation where a patient's taken a turn for the worse and they're going to get better and they're going to get out of the, they're going to survive and get out of the hospital. But sometimes they're really at the end of life and the, the patient or the physician or their doctor has made the decision, look, this is kind of a Hail Mary. Let's put this breathing tube down, see if we can get you through this episode. And, and you know, you'll get that breathing tube out in a week or two. Maybe you'll get out of the hospital. But you know that a lot of those patients, they're not going to survive. They'll never get the breathing tube put out. And this particular patient I describe in the book, and I could have chosen other ones because I heard it many times in my career. The last thing they said to me was, thank you. And mm-hmm. that's the last thing they said in this world. To anyone. Unknown doctor showing up to try to help them. What do they do as they're losing their life? The last thing they do is show this beautiful grace of gratitude to tell their doctor, thank you. Very, very powerful. Uh, we're here in Boston talking to you. I, I don't know where you are, actually. <laughs> where is home? Nashville, Nashville, Tennessee. Oh, the, the home of music everywhere. The yeah. reason I bring it up is because, of course, Mass General, and we have the famous uh, operating theater from the past that's kept alive where the ether oh, yes. was introduced. 
And I just want to talk to you a little bit about anesthesiology. Dear friend of mine is an anesthesiologist at one of the big Boston hospitals. Through your career, the advancements and the, the updates and all the things that have happened to make anesthesiology more effective and safer. Do you want to comment on that? Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, there have been advances in terms of drugs, in terms of maintaining hemodynamic stability and wearing off quickly and that type of thing. But I think the biggest advancement has been in monitoring our patients. When I trained, I had a manual blood pressure cuff on a patient, an EKG, and a little earpiece where I would hear breath sounds. Uh, now we are monitoring gases that are going in the patient and out of the patient. We have processed EEGs to help us uh, determine how asleep they are. We have all sorts of uh, monitors, end tidal CO2 and disconnect monitors that if your circuit comes apart, you don't have to be listening to a breath sound and hear it interrupted. And as a result of all of this really intensive monitoring, the medical malpractice premiums that we pay, which were among the highest in medicine when I went into anesthesia, now they're way down among the lowest. Uh, anesthesia has become incredibly safe because of uh, our ability to really see what's going on with the patient. And if they get into trouble or some untoward event has happened, mm. we can intervene. My wife just had hip surgery routine in the sense that it was elective and uh, anesthesia was just so easy, I mean, <laughs> compared to what she might have had 20 years ago. So we, we are thankful for that. I wanted to just touch on one more thing, and that is uh, the epilogue, which talks about, well, wrapping up the book. You have that famous quote by, I think, Charles Franklin, none of us get out of this life alive. Yes. But the, your perspective on life and death and the cycle has to have evolved over time, being so close to it. Uh, how would you sum up that perspective? Yeah, I, I, think it, I think my perspective was perhaps a little more intense because... Uh, as a cardiac anesthesiologist, um, it, we saw death not infrequently, uh, and we spent a lot of time in the ICU going to codes and that type of thing. So perhaps it was more intense than most people, but I think it followed the trajectory of most people. I think uh, most people were like me. That when you're young, you, you see somebody pass away who's older and it doesn't affect you much. You, uh, you know, they've, their time had come. They'd had a good life and you, it, they, they've gone to, they've sailed to a continent that you can't ever really imagine yourself being on that ship, taking that, mm. taking that voyage. But as you get older, um, I think you experience more, you see more. And uh, then certainly as you get into your older years, you realize, you know, this life doesn't go on forever. Days become a little bit more precious. You think a little bit more about what each day means, what your life means. Um, you know, I'm, I'm at the point in my life where I'm not building anything anymore. Now it's all about what I'm leaving behind. So I, I, I think that everybody goes through that transition and, um, you know, maybe... Maybe mine was a little bit more intense just because of the milieu that I was in. 
Critics have lauded your work here in this book, and some call it a, a very fine medical memoir, but it goes, of course, well beyond that. It's about human beings and how we relate to each other under stress and uh, then not so much under stress. I, I just thought it was terrific, and I'm going to recommend this to not only my friends who are in the medical field, but to all of my listeners. And by the way, um, as a writer, What's your background beyond this book? I know you've written articles for anesthesiology journals and so forth, but any creative writing in your past? Not really. Uh, And, you know, writing for chapters and that type of thing, it's, you know, you have to know how to put a sentence together properly, but it doesn't doesn't exactly have to sound good. Uh, and, you know, and if you if you can't sleep some night, just pick up an anesthesia textbook and read one of my chapters. Uh, You'll be out like a light. Yeah, uh, I I was actually an English major in uh, in college when I dropped out of pre med. But we, uh, you know, I, we didn't really do any writing other than you know write a paper about this or a paper about that. So I had to I had to kind of learn how to write uh, something that might be pleasing to the eye and to the ear. Uh, once I once I finished medicine, I had a lot of help. I had a couple of editors that gave me some great advice and uh, allowed me to uh, sort of make the sentences a little bit more concise and not go on and on and on. Well, I, I for one, think you have a future in this. I uh, hope you write more, whether it's fiction or non. I just, I just loved the way you put pen to paper. I thought it was great. I'll just quote one very tiny sentence here just to give folks an an example, sort of a sum up. This is what you wrote in your epilogue. I was continually amazed by the patients I was privileged to take care of, from their complete trust in my abilities to the grace they showed while facing death. They exhibited the best a physician could ask for in the doctor-patient relationship. To me, that is what this story, your story, is all about, and I'm very, very honored to have you on the podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. You know, as, as we talked about before we started this, you, you know, on the surface, this is a memoir about me, but it's really, I'm just a character in this book. It's really about the patience and the shared humanity that we all have with each other. Dr. David Alfrey, thank you so much and uh, continued success, happiness, and most importantly, good health. Thank you so much. Appreciate being here. He's Dr. David D. Alfrey, former cardiothoracic anesthesiologist from Nashville, Tennessee, where he was also an adjunct associate professor of anesthesiology at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. And again, he's the author of Saving Grace, What Patients Teach Their Doctors About Life, Death, and the Balance in Between. You can always go to Amazon.com or check out his website, SavingGraceBook.com. Thanks, as always, to Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media for his help in publishing this and many other podcasts that emanate from our studio here at Chart Productions in Boston. And my sincere gratitude to the growing audience around the world who continue to subscribe and download and share this podcast. Really appreciate the multi-star ratings and reviews as well. Find out more at my website, jordanrich.com. Till next time, remember to be well so you can do good. Take care. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. 
every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.